Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Tuesday, November the 5th. And thanks as always for tuning in. On today's show, I will be speaking with Bill Carroll. He is a professor of sociology at the University of Victoria and co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project. Mr. Carroll and I will be speaking about what the future of climate change activism looks like for this minority liberal government. In a paper released today, it states that over 60% of voters cast ballots for parties they campaign to take action on the climate emergency and with the Liberal Party having committed more aggressively to fighting climate change, a new report suggests that the influence of the fossil fuel lobby may not bode well for the future of Canadian climate policy. The report is entitled Big Oil's Political Reach Mapping Fossil Fuel Lobbying from Harper to Trudeau and it finds that both during the governments of Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, the industry was remarkably active in lobbying the federal government. Not much of a surprise. Also, the intensity of lobbying increased when policy issues like the Environmental Assessment Act arose or when there were big stakes for industries such as major pipeline decisions and approvals to be made. Not a surprise, again, that that lobbying would increase. During the seven-year period from 2011 to 2018 that was studied by this uh, project, the fossil fuel industry recorded more than 11,000 lobbying contacts with elected and non-elected federal government officials. That amounts to more than six contacts per working day. The bulk of the lobbying directed at Harper and Trudeau was carried out by the same large firms. Not a surprise again. So, with those kind of stats out there and unlikely to change, six contacts per working day by major lobby groups, how quickly are we likely to see action taken on climate change if it is oil and gas that are having the biggest influence? How difficult will it be for the government to move forward and enact policy changes that it promised it would make? Well, I'll be joined by, like I said, Bill Carroll to kick off the back half of today's show, and we're going to chat about all of that, what their study found, and how they think things can change moving forward. Now, uh, to end off today's program, I'm going to be talking about the future of shopping malls. Yesterday, we had reported here on Radio NL that Old Navy was going to be joining the fold at Aberdeen Mall. I'm sure there are many people out there who are excited for that. Uh, I've been to Old Navy many times myself. They have good deals. It's a solid clothing store, but it will be located in a mall. Do people even go to malls anymore? Over the last number of years in Canada, we have seen major anchor tenants at those shopping centers across the country go away. Uh, You know, things like Sears, gone. Zellers, gone and replaced by Target, which lasted all of, what, two years in many places? If it even lasted that long. So, yes, great that we're seeing shops open up and that not all companies are viewing malls as a place to avoid. But it does bring, and of course, sorry to say, it also brings jobs to the city, both in the form of retail workers as well as in the construction company that will be tasked to renovate these spaces. So that's all great news. But is it sustainable? Uh, Outside of Christmas and Boxing Day shopping, how often are people actually going to visit these places and spend time and money? Now, there's also a grocery store that's going to be going into the mall, from what I understand as well. I mean, that's a bit of a shift in how, uh, you know, what kind of stores are being put in malls. So, uh, I just want to have my own little take that I'm going to give later in the show to end things off, just to talk about shopping malls and, uh, you know, sort of what their future holds. Uh, I have one opinion, and it may not be the right opinion, but it doesn't change the fact that I have one. So, I'll be sharing that with you to end off today's program. 
And uh, coming up next, I will be having my usual post-school board meeting chat with SD73 Chair Kathleen Carpock. She will be in to talk about last night's board meeting, uh, what took place. Among the agenda items was the election of board representatives. Um, so we'll be talking a little bit about if there were any changes made there. Uh, there was also other discussions had last night as well, including things like class size and composition, which is a, a major focus of the ongoing contract dispute between the government and teachers. So we'll be chatting not so much about the contract, itself, but we'll ask about class size and composition and sort of how things look here in the Kamloops-Thompson district. Now, speaking of school, one thing I did want to talk about was Ontario uh, just announced that students will no longer be able to use their cell phones in classrooms. The Progressive Conservative government announced back in August that they would be implementing a ban on personal mobile devices inside classrooms or during instructional time. Of course, some exceptions to that ban include if devices are required for health and medical purposes, to support special education needs, or if an educator says it is necessary for the lesson. Right? That all makes perfect sense. The Toronto District School Board uh, abandoned a cell phone ban that it had in 2011 after officials determined it was too difficult to enforce. The uh, uh, education minister has previously said that he hopes provincial approach will be more beneficial and well, uh, now he is implementing that change. Ontario's Minister of Education. He says that students, parents, educators, and administrators need to work together to embrace a new culture of learning. Stephen Lecce says, quote, Technology is so important in the 21st century that when it comes to modern workforce, he embraces technology is going to continue to do so in the classroom. But if it's not for academic achievement, if it's not for scholastic purposes, if it's not instruction-based, it's not going to be in the class. I think that's pretty fair um, desire to have, uh, but how realistic is it? Uh, it's going to be difficult, I think, to uh, enforce these rules like the Toronto School Board found back in 2011. A 2018 study published in the Journal of Computers and Human Behavior found that cell phones tended to reduce the attention and memory even when they weren't being used. That study researched uh, college students suggesting that uh, mere presence of a cell phone can impair learning during a lecture. That's in college students, and I'm sure the effects would worsen for high school students. Uh, one of the authors of that study, a professor at the University of Alabama, said that as someone who teaches regularly, she worries about how well students are learning in the presence of their digital technology like cell phones and laptops. So, to perform the study, an experiment was undertaken. Now, researchers had 380 college students watch a videotape lecture and take a short quiz after that lecture. Some of the students were allowed to use their cell phones, some were told not to use it and to put it into silent mode, while some were not allowed to possess their cell phones at all. In addition to this, four text messages were sent to those participants during the lecture. Researchers found that students tended to perform worse on the quiz when they had their cell phone and when they scored higher on a measure of nomophobia, that is the fear of being without access to your own phone. Great that there's a name for that. Uh, the same was true of students who were noticeably distracted by those four text messages that were sent during this experiment. So if college students clearly can't handle being without their phone, then uh, like I said earlier, how on earth will high school kids cope? Well. Ontario is taking this step to ban mobile devices in classrooms, and it is perhaps a step that BC could potentially look at as well. Uh, but back in March, BC Education Minister Rob Fleming said that the province has no plan on following Ontario's provincial-wide ban. He's quoted as saying that we are not considering at this time. We are going to leave that to school districts to decide the cell phone policies in schools. There are a number of schools that have moved to ban cell phones during school hours, and he adds that you would hear a lot of teachers that would say sometimes cell phones and tablets would be useful. 
as was pointed out uh, in Ontario as well, that sometimes cell phones and tablets and computers are useful to lesson plans, but more often than not, they probably just prove to be a distraction. Now, I took a page out of uh, the Clearwater Secondary School, which states, as a general rule, students in grade 8 and 9 will not need their phones for school use, and they should just leave them at home in their locker, their backpack, or pocket while in class. While students in grades 10 to 12 may need their phones for class use, but it asks them to keep them in their backpack or pocket unless asked otherwise by teachers to pull them out. Uh, then encourages students to make or take personal calls or texts during break times only. Well, keeping a phone in your pocket seems like it will be uh, pretty tempting to look at and still potentially quite distracting, but I guess we'll just have to see how Ontario's ban goes, and then uh, we'll have a better idea if it actually works, and if it is something worth following suit on, uh, not only in this province, but I'm sure that will be something looked at uh, nationwide as, uh, you know, these technology continues to, to increase and continues to uh, penetrate our lives and influence what we do and how we think. Um, obviously, we can't avoid technology, and keeping it out of the classroom would be foolish, uh, since so many jobs depend on technology, and uh, you know, this is no different. I'm sitting here tying into a microphone, looking off a computer screen. I uh, couldn't do that without technology. So definitely an important school to ha uh, important tool to have, but nonetheless uh, can be difficult when trying to learn, uh, you know, life skills such as reading and math. Uh, definitely can be a distraction, and we'll see if Ontario's ban uh, can have any influence on how the education system approaches the use of technology, specifically cell phone use, moving forward. Now, with all that being said, like I had said, Kamloops Thompson School Board Chair Kathleen Par Karpuk will join me next. Uh, maybe we can uh, continue this conversation a little bit further. Uh, but until then, um, wait, sorry, uh, let's take a break so I can take this call. All right, uh, thanks so much. News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Tuesday, November 5th. The Kamloops Thompson School Board met last night, where among the uh, things that it did were held its elections. I'm joined now by the chair of the board, Kathleen Karpa. Kathleen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And uh, I guess uh, you are still the chair, correct? I'm still chair, yes. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, let me just first ask by getting that kind of out of the way. So the board positions were picked last night. I guess, was there any major shakeups on, on the board? Uh, we do have a new uh, representative to the BC School Trustees Association Provincial Council. That's now John O'Fee. Uh, Trustee Shelley Sim from Clearwater was the Provincial Council representative last year, so there is a change there. All right, good stuff. So congratulations to those who were elected to new positions or who held on to their uh, current positions. And uh, for you as well, congratulations on continuing to be the chair of the board. Thank you very much. Um, so the first thing I kind of wanted to ask about that I know was sort of discussed, I mean, it was more of a report just kind of for information, I guess, than anything else, but was class size and composition because you guys received some numbers there. Um, district aggregate class sizes average are currently uh, kindergarten 18.3 students, uh, grades 1 to 3 just under 20, grades 4 to 7 23.7 .7, and 8 to 12. 23.1. I mean, uh, that seems like a pretty good number for teachers right now. I guess just how are any ideas sort of how the board feels about its current uh, class size right now? So we're pretty happy with that. They're uh, manageable class sizes. Uh, if you read the report, you will notice that we do have some classes that are over 30. They're all in the high school, and they're all associated with band or physical education. And that's where having larger numbers is, uh, especially with band and choir, not a bad thing because the more voices, the more instruments that you have, um, the more 
fulsome sound that you get. Um, with some of the classes, it was a choice of you could have one extra student, otherwise that student wouldn't necessarily be able to take that class. And in those cases, the teachers did give permission to go over those class sizes. In any case, anytime any class is over 30 students, the teacher has to give permission. Perfect. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about that because I know class size and composition is a big discussion point during these ongoing uh, teacher contracts. I'm not going to ask about the contract itself, but sounds like things here in District 73 aren't uh, too bad when it comes to that. Now, uh, when you came in here, uh, you handed me the school district uh, learning plan. It's a pretty, uh, what do we got here, a uh, 35-page report. Uh, document, I guess, or pamphlet, if you will, just, uh, you know, what, what was this all about? You guys obviously had a pretty thorough discussion about this plan. So this is our guiding document for pretty much all of the work that the school district does with regards to students. We take our lead from our strategic plan that we developed several years ago, where we set out our priorities as to where we wanted to go as a district. And we did a lot of consultations with parents, community, teachers, and students around that plan. This is how we operationalize this. We take a look at that plan every year. We decide how close are we to those goals. So we look at where are we, where are we going, and then how are we going to get there? And that's what this plan and this document is about. And so as you go through, you'll see that we measure things like foundation skills. How well are students doing in numeracy and literacy? And we measure those based on some of the different assessments that we have. And you'll notice that our results have increased. We look at our graduation rates. Again, those have gone up. We look at parity for Aboriginal students. That's been increasing. You can see that on the chart with our Aboriginal students, we've gone from a graduation rate of just over 40% to a graduation rate of 79%. That's a pretty significant bounce. Um, so it's uh, very, very reassuring that we're going in the right direction. We're also looking for areas where we're not doing so well. And so we look at some things and students who feel that they're being prepared for life after graduation, are we addressing those concerns? We don't seem to be getting super high scores there. The province isn't getting really good scores there. So that's an area that we need to work on. Um, so that was that uh, the main takeaway, I guess, as, as sort of things that you need to improve upon? Because obviously you look at what you're doing to see how well it's going and then kind of make changes based on those results. Um, so in terms of preparation for post-secondary, that's one area. Were there any other major areas that you saw that need improvement? Um, you know, other than things you've already identified, like graduation rates and the Aboriginal graduation rate, that's obviously an ongoing process to try to build that up. But was there anything that sort of maybe stood off the page that you were surprised about? Uh, numeracy is something that we have been focusing on for the past few years. Our numeracy results aren't as good as we would like them. They're not great across the province. We think that they need to be stronger, so that's something that's a focus in our district. And again, this is something that, this is an ongoing process. We look at where we are, we review what we're doing, we assess whether or not it's working, we decide whether or not we need to make changes, add some extra resources, shift our methodology, and then go through the cycle again. So you haven't been able to pinpoint any one specific reason as to why things maybe aren't as um, productive or people aren't uh, learning maybe in that area as well as you would like? Sometimes it just takes a while for things to shift. So one of the things that we have been doing is providing extra support for uh, numeracy. We've added coordinators. That's going to take some time to see results. 
because math is one of these things that you have to build on. So you have to build the basic skills and then you build on top of that and you build on top of that again. So this is going to be a long-term project in order for us to get to where we want to go. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, this might just be an anecdotal question, I suppose, because I was talking about cell phone use uh, in my intro, and, and Ontario is making a ban to move uh, to, to ban cell phones in, in classrooms across the province. Uh, do you think that that potentially has any impact on people's ability to, to learn math skills? I mean, uh, you know, when you have the ability to pull out your phone as a calculator every two seconds, it's it's hard to retain some of that information, right? So I'm just curious, sort of, what the cell phone policy is here in SD73 and if that potentially has any impact. So right now our cell phone uh, technology is that a cell phone is another piece of technology just like a laptop or a desktop computer or a calculator. Um, we know cell phones have more computing power than they had on the space shuttle when it went to them up into space. So it's an extremely powerful piece of technology. And when you combine that with the ability to look up any piece of information that is out there on the internet with this device that's in your pocket versus a textbook that takes several years to publish and then is in circulation for multiple years, the, d the information in the textbook is very much out of date. So why would we condemn students to using an out-of-date textbook when they have a device in their pocket where they can instantly look up the most current and relevant information? So part of having cell phones in classrooms is learning how to use them appropriately, when it's good to use them, and when you need to turn them off and put them down. Yeah, that's a, a problem that we all, I think, have is when should we turn them off and put them down? Uh, definitely an issue I have on a daily basis. Um, one more thing I did want to ask because we're sort of running out of time here, but uh, one thing on the agenda was the United Way campaign for um, the school board. Uh, can you maybe just talk a little bit about the importance of the United Way and how it contributes uh, to, to some of the support programs that the school has? So the United Way is an absolutely fantastic partner for us. Um, they do so much work and so many programs that benefit our students directly. Uh, a concrete example right now is that our Four Directions students currently have classroom space with United Way, so they are hosting our students while we're waiting for their new home to be uh, set up with portables as a result of the Parkcrest fire. Uh, United Way provides uh, funding for our continuing education program, a social worker there who's connecting students with resources and helping those, those students find their way through life so that they can have a successful graduation and continue to move on. Uh, so many projects, the Starfish Backpack Project, um, after school programs, United Way provides an incredible amount of support for our students, and uh, we wouldn't see the success that we do without them. Perfect. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of hear that from you because I know the United Way does some great work within the community, and, and the school uh, system is no different in terms of receiving that support. So thanks so much for coming in, Kathleen. I always appreciate your time. Uh, congratulations on being the board chair again, and uh, we'll look ahead to doing this in a couple of weeks. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That was SD73 Board Chair Kathleen Karpug. Uh, coming up after the break, the minority liberal government promised to take action on climate change, but just how challenging is that going to be with the extensive lobbying that will be done by the oil and gas industry? We'll have more on that after this. 
your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Tuesday, November the 5th. Uh, with climate change in action to reverse it being major focal points of the 43rd federal election, some may be wondering just how serious the government will take those promises. Uh, we have seen counterous, countless times where the government has made and broken promises, and oftentimes a heavy factor in those decisions could be the influence of lobby groups. A new report finds that during both governments of Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, the oil and gas industry was remarkably active in lobbying the federal government. Also, the intensity of lobbying increased when major policy issues such as pipelines would pop up. What impact could this potentially have on our current minority liberal government? Well, I'm joined now by a professor of sociology at the University of Victoria and co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project, Bill Carroll. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, uh, no problem. Thanks, Jeff. So let me just start by asking you and, and kind of getting a general sense of why you wanted to be a part of this study. What was it about lobby groups and, and, and their influence that interests you? Well, um, this is part of a larger uh, project, as you say, the corporate mapping project, and we're really we're trying to shine a light on the uh, oil and gas and coal industry in Canada and the kind of influence it has politically and uh, even culturally. So we've been looking at uh, quite a number of different venues, different means of influence uh, that, are, uh, that are used, but certainly lobbying is a really uh, tangible and important one, and, and there's a... Um, in the in the last number of years, uh, governments have established lobby registries um, that provide you know some fairly systematic information on this. So so we were able to track uh, the the pattern uh, fairly closely over the period from 2011 to 2018. But I think it's it's one of um, of a number of important ways in which the corporate sector uh, exerts uh, a great deal of uh, power and influence uh, in uh, in politics uh, in Canada. So would it be safe to say that you have some concern about the potential outside influence that, uh, you know, is placed on government and how uh, decisions are made? Well, yeah. I mean, I think um, there's various ways of thinking about democracy, and certainly elections are an important part uh, of democracy, a crucial part. Uh, but between elections, you know, what happens is uh, is also very important. And what, what we find is a kind of ongoing um, pattern of um, very extensive and intensive contact between the largest uh, corporations, uh, particularly the 10 largest ones that account for like 70% of all the corporate lobbying that uh, we tracked, and, um, and, and um, specific targeted ministries and uh, state officials uh, within the federal government. And it, you know, I mean, it amounts to uh, just over six contacts every working day uh, on average, which is, you know, if you think about it, an incredible uh, network um, of ongoing communication between one corporate, well-organized uh, corporate voice, the um, uh, big carbon, if you like, and um, and the federal government and its uh, various uh, ministries and uh, departments. 
Yeah, I was going to point out that stat that you had brought up there that, um, you know, from, from 2011 to 2018, like you had mentioned, that, that study period that you looked at, um, the fossil fuel industry recorded over 11,400 contacts with elected and non-elected federal government officials. And like you had said, uh, that amounts to over six contacts per working day. Uh, if you break that down per hour, that's like, what well, one every hour and 15 minutes or something like that. So, I mean, uh, if you're bombarded by these same messages six times a day, uh, safe to say it's probably going to have a pretty significant on impact on how you think and uh, decisions that you could potentially make. So um, I guess this was sort of the main point, right? It's just looking at how significant the influence is from those outside bodies and, and how frequently that they're, they're targeting these officials. Uh, yeah, that's definitely uh, the main uh, takeaway that there's, you know, as I say, one voice dominating here in the conversation. And you know, if you compare it to, let's say, the the environmental uh, NGOs of Canada, um, the um, the oil and gas sector, uh, we found that they're lobbying at five times the rate of the entire environmental movement, and that's just one sector of the of the business community, a very important sector. But but you know, it gives you a sense of the um, uh, the, 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 how, how sloped the, the playing field is in terms of lobbying, which is really a, it's, it's a form of persuasive communication vis-a-vis -vis the government. And so you have this one corporate voice that is really dominating. So this report, uh, one of the questions that was sort of asked in it was, why is Canada being so politically paralyzed in pursuing decisive climate action? And, uh, you know, how can that paralysis be overcome? Um, do you think that you were able to answer that, at least that first part of the question, as why it's been so politically, you know, stuck in the mud, if you will, when it comes to, to making climate action decisions? Do you think it is just this, this lobby groups that we're seeing kind of having that major influence over government, and that's really what's dragging things down? Do you think that if there was some change and, and maybe some policy and how lobby groups were able to interact with government that might change the way decisions are potentially made? Yeah, I think that um, it's definitely a part of the picture. As I say, there are other aspects of, um, of corporate influence um, that are ongoing uh, as well. Um, and, um, uh, you know, just the way that uh, corporate-funded think tanks tend to, you know, put certain kinds of ideas into uh, public uh, discussion um, as, as one example. But certainly lobbying is, is very important. It's an ongoing kind of uh, process uh, that, uh, you know, governments might change, but the lobbyists are continuing in this kind of pretty stable in, uh, network of intensive relationships. But I think it, it, it can, you know, there are some fairly straightforward reforms that could be made to really begin to level the playing field at least um one of them is um to move toward greater transparency so that um more um information about every lobbying uh contact and meeting is available to the public because after all this is this should be really a public process it shouldn't be a kind of behind closed door communicative process um uh it's it's a matter of uh you know um, communication, trying to influence uh, public institutions, and 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 the lobbying registries already report a number of things, but they they could do a better job, more systematically reporting, uh, for example, exactly what topics are discussed in each uh, particular lobbying meeting, uh, which they don't uh, currently report uh, at that kind of fine grain level, um, and who's actually doing the lobbying? Uh, that's not reported. Um, 
either in terms of the actual individuals uh, doing the lobbying. They, the, the people who are being lobbied um, are reported, the designated public office holders. But the other major reform uh, that we recommend, actually, at the end of our report is... Um, to uh, to look into the possibility, and then actually it's more than a possibility, it's actually happening uh, in British Columbia, uh, uh, of establishing um, uh, advocates. Uh, for example, we have now the BC Office of the Seniors uh, Advocate, and that's a way of 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 representing the interests of a particular sector in this case not the corporate sector but you know senior citizens and their various uh, social and health needs and so on and so forth and that can be uh, effective in terms of introducing other voices into the conversation so that the state officials are not simply hearing the voice of the corporate sector all the time and th that kind of model could be used um, in other sectors including uh, issues of climate change for example uh, I'm joined right now with uh, Professor of Sociology at University of Victoria and co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project, Bill Carroll. Um, so when you're looking at that last conclusion, the one that you had just brought up there, so starting here in BC, we've seen the um, at least the beginnings of establishing advocate offices to advocate on, on behalf of certain interest groups. Um, do you think that, that you know, basically it kind of has to start at that provincial level and maybe it'll shift up to the federal level? Like, do you think that, uh, you know, BC could almost be used as a training ground, if you will, for those types of positions and, and see how effective they are? Sure. You know, why not? I mean, it, it seems to be working well in the B.C. context in this particular domain of um, of uh, seniors' issues, uh, you know, and it, basically the idea is not just to have a, an individual advocate, but to have a grassroots-based um, committee of advisors and an advisory committee that is in place in B.C. in terms of the seniors' advocate, you know, providing the kind of uh, grounded information that's, uh, that's needed. Now, you also, in this report, looked at, uh, you know, the seven-year period from 2011 to 2018. So during both those, uh, those those two forms of government, the Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, they were both serving under a majority. Uh, so do you think that now that we're looking at a liberal majority here moving forward that, you know, things could potentially change in, in how lobbying is done? Like, I assume that, you know, those six contacts per day won't change unless policy changes. But, uh, you know, do you think that at least that might have less of an influence given the fact that they basically have to lobby to two parties now instead of one? Um, yeah, I think it's um, it's an interesting uh, change, isn't it, in, in terms of um, uh, the challenges it presents for for lobbying. Um, uh, I would assume that, you know, the, the, the government of Canada will continue to be targeted. I mean, a lot of the people who are lobbied are not the elected officials, but the, um, the senior uh, civil servants. Um, so that's a kind of stable pattern um, that continues across, uh, e you know, elections. Um, and um, but certainly the opposition conservatives will be heavily lobbied um, along with the uh, the liberals and uh, who knows um, who who else. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, lobbyists will will also uh, target. Uh, um, NDP and Bloc Québécois, you know, I mean, basically, it's a kind of, it's a very well-financed, well-resourced effort, so it's, it's strategic in targeting, but it's not, it's not as if they're, um, they're ignoring certain um, political um, players, they're, you know, they're trying to have broad influence as well as um, narrowly targeted influence. 
Now, Bill, I guess, what do you think should happen next? Because I, I don't think this information is necessarily surprising. Maybe looking at some of the dramatic stats, like talking about you know having six contacts per day with federal government officials is, is pretty uh, staggering if you look at just how frequently these lobby groups are um, approaching individuals within the federal government and trying to make their point. Uh, but I guess, what, what do you think has to happen next? Do you think that this, you know, you put in this research to show some of the statistics just to show how big of an issue it potentially is. You're starting to see things like advocacy offices open up here in BC at a provincial level, and maybe that'll trickle up into the federal level at some point. But who do you think has to sort of make the call for change? Because, uh, you know, when you're talking about people in the within the government, it's it's often pretty difficult for them to, to look past some of the lobbying that is occurring. You know, they're buddies with the lobby group uh, people that are out there. So, I mean, just where does you think the message kind of has to come from? Do you think it has to come from sort of a grassroots level to sort of see the government make those policy changes to to sort of have more bigger restrictions on how lobbying occurs or I'm just I'm just curious your take on sort of where this information goes next because I don't want to see it just die we want to see this kind of move forward and see some changes in how decisions are made especially when we're talking climate change like you had mentioned uh, in the report 60% of people had voted for some form of climate change to take place based on who or what party they voted for so clearly people want to see climate change but the oil and gas industry is going to continue to have a major influence on uh, public policy and how decisions are made. So, so what what is the next steps for this information? Do the people of Canada have to sort of push the government to do it, or or what's next? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that really is our question, and it's. Um I mean, hopefully this report um, provides uh, ammunition for people, um, you know, who, who would like to see a more robust democracy uh, to agitate to and to, to argue in favor of, um, of uh, tighter restrictions on corporate lobbying and, and leveling the playing field, more transparency. Um, I think, um, you know, there are a number of measures. I mean, ultimately it does come down to how powerful the industry itself is, and that, that addresses, that takes us beyond the issue of lobbying. Uh, in terms of just the concentration of economic power. Um, um, but I think, um, I think on the lobbying issue, which is an important one just to basic functioning of democracy, I think it, it does come down to uh, grassroots um, voices um, stepping up and becoming more organized um, around this issue. Um, it does tie in, I think, with, um, with the climate crisis um, if we think about, you know, the undue influence of the oil and gas sector in shaping um, uh, federal government uh, policy. And, and by the way, we did a study of this kind specifically uh, addressed to the situation in B.C. Um, a couple of years ago uh, that we, we released, uh, primarily um, looking at data from the, the years that uh, the liberals uh, were in power. Um, and... Um, the BC Liberals, uh, and and found you know basically the same kind of pattern of really extensive and intensive corporate um, domination of the of the conversation. So I think I think the change has to come from below. One would not expect uh, established uh, interests and players to have a, a much of an interest in uh, changing anything, um, but. Um, uh, you know, where exactly? I mean, I, I can't think of a particular organization that I think is already on the ground really uh, pushing for um, for these kinds of reforms. But uh, hopefully this this report will uh, will inspire uh, some citizen action. Good stuff, Bill. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. This is some really interesting information, so I'm happy you're able to connect and, and get some of the stuff out there. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, you're most welcome.
That was uh, Bill Carroll, professor of sociology at University of Victoria and co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be joined in studio here by, uh, it looks like, a couple of our people from the newsroom, so stick around for, for that. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on Tuesday, November the 5th. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Uh, good news for our local retail sector, as we reported here yesterday. Old Navy is going to be joining the fold at Aberdeen Mall, in addition to the uh, Fresh Street Market grocery chain looking to join there as well. Uh, also, Marshalls is set to head into that mall. So, yeah, the mall uh, obviously uh, getting some love when it comes to adding new stores. Uh, but it used to be, like, the coolest place to hang out, you know. Uh, during school, many people would uh, meet there for coffee, go for power walks in the morning. Morning. But uh, is the evolution of online retail and the changing retail landscape really um, challenging the way people do their shopping? And are they still going to the mall? Well, uh, let's let's dig a little deeper here. to throw in some rub and sparkles there. I'm you here with have to, yeah. Victor no, no, Kaiser you, you really and Davies. have to do that. Yes, had to. So uh, let me start with you, Victor. Do you even go to the mall anymore? Is that a place that people still like to go and shop and hang out? Well, I go to the movie theater next to the mall more often, but I, I have gone into the mall to the food court, a couple stores. I had to buy a knife when I moved to Kamloops, and I thought about the mall of all places, and uh, it worked out for me. So uh, I do go, but maybe not as frequently as I would 10 years ago. Yeah, Colton, do you go to the mall ever? Absolutely. I mean, when I was a teenager, you probably go there just to hang out and kind of kill some time with your buddies for sure. But being older now, um, you know, I definitely go there when needed. I don't know if I go out of my way to go to the mall, but, you know, there's enough there that I have... Although you said you people go there for power walks and for coffees at lunch, and uh, yeah, no. um, I was picturing the demographic that I thought you were talking about there, <laughs> yeah. and I gotta say, I think that might have been way off, but maybe in some that's that's bang on. <laughs> uh, I did find one little study that was saying that stats indicate mall traffic, although is down as a whole, people are not uh, you know visiting malls as often as they did, but sales uh, conversions are actually up, which means people who go to the mall are actually intending to buy stuff. That's the reason they're going there. So that should be a good thing for retailers. You know, people aren't just coming into window shop and put their fingers on everything and walk away without buying stuff. So um, I guess, I mean, if I were to go to the mall, I'd be going there for a specific purpose. I mean, would you think the same way as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's not something I'm just going to go and, you know, take a walk because if I need to, we've got tons of trails and camlips, right? So that's where I'll take my walks. I don't know. If you got enough time, you know, when oh. I was on holidays last week, oh, uh, I was very close once to just going to the mall for no reason. Very close. Let me tell you. But Didn't happen. I'd imagine, you know, we have a lot of seniors, a growing senior population. Uh, people just go there. There's a food court. There's coffee stores. And maybe you go check out Bath and Body Works or, or stores like that as well, right? So I think there's, you know, people make the leisure trip still. And I think maybe the demographic that's more likely to do that is maybe growing. Well, and I don't I, have any stats in front of me to say that. We're just yeah, no, yeah, basically just uh, having a little chat here. But uh, I mean, one thing too, when you look at something like a grocery store going in, and that's not something you would normally see at a mall. Maybe in like a big city like a Toronto or Vancouver, but in, I've seen it in places like Coquitlam. But like, it's just not something you see as frequently. And if you were going grocery shopping and the mall was the closest place to go, I mean, you're probably more likely to venture off into another store if you're already there, right? So I mean, I think you have to see a bit of a shift in the way that. Uh, 
people like what stores are in there right like it is yeah i mean if if it's something that i need and i know i can only get it at the mall then i'm going to the mall because as great as online shopping is there are things that i need right away i'm not going to wait three weeks or pay 10 bucks right. to have it shipped to me i i want it now because i well need it now and i left it till uh, the 11th hour i've but never like, bought anything online in my life ever and i'm 24 for i'm real? in that demographic that that lives off of that never once bought something online instead of going to the mall for it. That's I hear a joke, uh, shocking. I hear a joke story from someone I know in Kamloops who buys a lot of things from China, and uh, they bought an extra large shirt, and it came and it was like a toddler small on them. Oh, as, yeah. As a normal-sized adult. So. There's countless stories of that. Yeah, I've bought, like, online jerseys and stuff, and they're, they're close, but they're never perfect. Um, but, Victor, you came from Edmonton, so West Edmonton Mall, a lot of different stuff in there. You As got water parks and, uh, you know, theme parks and, and the like. I yeah, mean, would that, you be more, if say you were, went to Palladium, right, which is in the mall, or I think it's still there, if you went there to go to the arcade, and then you're like, you know what, I actually also need to get this, right, you're probably more likely to just buy it while you're there. You are, yeah, me and my brother, actually, funny story, we specifically went to West Ed Mall because he wanted to ride the roller coaster in there, and then we popped into a couple shops, and uh, I think he bought shoes, and I bought a couple shirts, so, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You go for one specific purpose, and then you kind of get distracted. But it's also West Ed Mall. There's tons of things sure. to distract you with the ice rink and uh, the water park that's not... Yeah. yeah, I just think we need to diversify some of the things that are in the mall to get new clientele in there, maybe for one specific purpose, and then people will still do the retail shopping, but it's almost like a secondary reason to go there. And I think a grocery store is a good addition when you think about diversifying, the same mm -hmm. way that a grocery store is important to have in a downtown, just like we have one in downtown Kamloops here. Not every city has that, right? But for sure. if you live downtown, you want to do grocery shopping, you don't want to have to commute far and... You know, typically, too, if you're if you live closer to somewhere, you know, so it just makes sense that way. Perfect. Well, hopefully that, uh, you know, some new stores to the mall will help bring some new people there. Thanks so much for coming in, guys. Appreciate you it. Bet. OK, Victor, Colton. Thanks so much. All right. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at nine.